Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and this is episode 9. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. On this episode, we center trans issues and bring y'all an interview with Isa Noyola, Director of Programs at the Transgender Law Center. For our current events segment, we'll be talking about the case of Kai Peterson, who was convicted of manslaughter for killing his rapist. And for our legal case, we get into G.G. Grimm versus the Gloucester County School Board, the case where Gigi, a student, wasn't allowed to use the boys' restroom at his high school. And we're going to start with uh, current events. But first, I want to apologize because I'm sick, so if I start coughing, my bad. Um, And second, I just want to say, hi, Yvette. Like, it's good to be in the same room as you. (laughs) I know. In case people don't know, we recorded the vast majority of our episodes away from each other when Cynthia was in North Carolina and I was in California. So it's fun to be able to actually be in the same room. I know. I also wanted to clarify something I said in episode eight. I accidentally said that the acquisition of Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado were the result of the Louisiana Purchase, but that transaction was actually a result of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and then actually, I forget which specific states, but like a good portion of those were straight up just stolen from Mexico. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just thought it was important to clarify that because the Louisiana Purchase is a different thing. Okay. Um, thank you, Yvette. So for our current events, do you want to give the background of who's Kai Peterson and what was what happened? Yes. Um, so Kai Peterson was convicted of involuntary manslaughter and for killing his rapist in self-defense. The story was that he was walking home and he was suddenly struck on the back of his head and raped. And he was and he fought back and he had the instinct to fight back because he had been previously raped um so was a survivor and already knew that the police wouldn't do anything to help him because in that case he had gone to the police and nothing happened and there's just like a series of dehumanizing experiences that happened to kai he did end up being interrogated by the police and went to a clinic where he had a rape kit done and the counselor told him that he didn't seem like a rape victim and that's so awful he is super invalidating and triggering and re-traumatizing and then for context kai peterson is a low-income black man so i think that there's layers to why a counselor would say that he didn't seem like a rape victim And then the other thing to note about this case is that Georgia has a stand your ground law, which is similar to the one in Florida, which essentially says that you have a right to self-defense if somebody is attacking you. And the Florida law was used in the defense of George Zimmerman, the murder of Trayvon Martin. But distinct from George Zimmerman's fate, Kai was actually um, convicted of involuntary manslaughter and given 20 years um, despite the fact that the maximum amount of time you're supposed to serve for involuntary manslaughter is 10 years and this case just demonstrates that our laws are not equally enforced on people both in terms of the stand your ground law and in terms of how the sentence was given and something that's like extra 
messed up about this is that there was, there's no sentencing transcript that exists. So when someone went back and tried to rectify um, the sentencing disparity, no documents were able to be found. That's that I don't, I can't fathom that just because like as lawyers you have to keep track of everything <laughs> like literally when you get a record for a trial there's so many pages because when they take a break when they meet in chambers like everything is recorded so I just don't understand how there can be no sentencing transcript and how like a disparity like that happens like how I would want to go see the trial transcripts like did the lawyer notice like did the defense attorney notice that he was given like 20 years and Max is supposed to be 10 like how does like, how does this happen? Like, I feel like this is the kind of thing that you tell people and people are like, no way, that does not happen in the United States. But like, here you go. It's happening. Yeah, I think his public defender seemed really incompetent based on the articles that I was reading. Mm. Like, he didn't even seem remorseful at the fact that Kai was given such a bad sentence. Um, and it seemed like also the public defender was just accepting the social climate of, of Georgia. Like, he was like, oh, well... This is a low-income black man, and like we didn't even want to, we didn't even want to bring up the trans issue because like we knew that that was going to be disfavorable when it came by the jury, mm-hmm. um, and like that kind of reactive lawyering, I think, c- contributes to the status quo because it's like I get it how a jury is going to respond to something that you factor into your lawyering strategy, but I, but the comments from him just, I felt like he also agreed with those sentiments and, and that was the reason why he didn't push back or advocate harder for Kai. And so the reason we're talking about this now, cause when did, when did this happen? This happened a while ago, right? In 2015. Okay. So like a, a, two years ago. Yeah. And what is Kai's experience now? Like why, why was he in the news again now? Uh, he was denied hormone therapy and or medical care, and so for folks who aren't familiar with hormone therapy, therapy, can you explain? Hormone therapy is kind of a part of it's um, part of what Kai needed in order to be able to more fully express his gender identity, and he was denied this medical care in the facility that he's in. I work on issues right of like with folks facing incarceration a lot and so I'm constantly thinking about this like to get any sort of health care is so hard because people already have this idea of like if you're incarcerated you're like a bad person and mm-hmm. we shouldn't spend any money on your well-being mm-hmm. and so like the, that's like one of the problems that our our society has like as a whole like we that's how we view carcer- incarceration so I can only imagine like in our system that already does not value brown and black people that's okay with just locking them up like then I don't know, just the way, we'll talk about this later, but the way folks talk about trans issues, it's like, oh, it's just like you're just confused. So I can, I cannot imagine like the hardship of having to be incarcerated after you were raped, like just the levels of trauma that we're talking about here. And then you're trying to like adapt, like adapt to this environment and get your hormone therapy. Like the amount of aggression that I'm sure Kai has experienced inside the inside the institution of incarceration and then how he got there in the first place like that's just like it's gonna take generations to heal from yeah and I think uh our prison system and our immigration detention center do so much like it's like on top of the violence of being imprisoned, like being kept in a cage, there's also a ton of misgendering that happens among prison officials and 
like uh, also like denial of hormone therapy that doesn't let people live out their gender and and then like just the fact that our prison system is set up in a binary way so that if you're gender non-conforming like you will be placed into one category even if you don't want to be placed in that category i think we wanted to highlight this case because it demonstrates the extent of state violence and state repression for the trans community yeah and i know um this issue doesn't come up in this case but something else that i wanted to talk about was just the existence of this like shock reveal defense because for me when you told me about this case Yvette I was a little surprised I was expecting it like expecting this case to be about something else because I'm I've heard several cases where someone's on trial for the murder of a trans person whether it's trans woman or a trans male and I've heard what I found to be very infuriating is when folks will use commit that murder and then use as a defense like they were like the shock reveal and sort of like in the rage of passion kind of argument that they didn't know the person was was trans and then because of that they were so shocked that they went into a passion and then murdered that and so i just wanted to highlight that that exists like that's a thing and i don't like it's to me i can't believe our our justice system allows people to argue that like you don't what like but that just shows where we are right like where we are in terms of like like, a judge can sit there and be like, or a jury can sit there and be like, oh, I bet, I see, like, I'd be pretty shocked, I'd be pretty upset. Like, no, you have no right to assume anyone's gender in the first place. Yeah, and I think that that the reason that that is able to be a defense is because of who end up being judges. Like, white men sympathize with other white men who are, who are taken over by toxic masculinity, I think, because... I think shock reveal, the shock reveal defense also reminds me of the, not to get on a tangent, but of the defense of like the impassioned person who just found out that there's, who like walks in on their spouse cheating on them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's also another line of defenses. It's like, oh, well, I was just so mad in the moment. And there's judges who are like, oh yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely read a lot of cases with that. Yeah. Um, Those arguments in it. And yeah, it's just part of like our accepted legal. Like, oh yeah, if you catch someone cheating on you, it's okay to kill them. Like you can't. I think the, the other thing I wanted to bring up with this case was how survivors of domestic violence are punished in our criminal system because the... The fact that Kai was punished for ultimately being a survivor of rape isn't an isolated instance in this case. Like, um, the like last year, the the National Lawyer Guild chapter here did a letter writing night for Brescia Brescia mm. Meadows, um, who's also a survivor of domestic violence. She killed her she killed her father, who was um, a domestic abuser of her and her mom, and um, this. Uh, the issue of survivors of domestic violence being punished is also a really salient issue in the trans community because I, I, I think that that says something about who our society deems should be protected or who's worthy of protection. Like, I think a cis white woman is, I think, like the pinnacle of what's protected in in the society and I think that people like Kai are deemed to be disposable and so that's why you know, even though he had suffered this traumatic incident, 
uh, under the eyes of the law all that mattered was that he killed somebody. Yeah. If you were, if you had been his defense lawyer, would you have communicated to the jury that he was trans and kind of brought up statistics of how often there's violence committed against trans people? Um, so I am not that experienced of a trial attorney, <laughs> but, you know, based on what I know now, well, that's a hard one because like, I mean, I think that it, this, this highlights how the law can only change so much and like changing public perception is really what needs to happen because like my first task would be to figure out what my who's likely to comprise my local jury trial and what they're most likely to care about. Like, unfortunately, lawyering makes you think about that. Because, like, in my ideal world, like, yeah, I would, this would just be about justice and all I would need to do was explain the statistics of trans people being murdered and the stats about domestic violence and then the stats about like, how survivors end up incarcerated. And then the jury would be like, wow, this is really unjust. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't know if it would be that way in Georgia based on my limited interactions in the state. And so I think my first task would just be figuring out what defense would be most palatable to them, which I think, you know, like in our conversation with Issa, she was talking about how the relationship between a lawyer and uh, someone who's more directly impacted by whatever we're talking about is a symbiotic relationship because the lawyer has their legal training, but then the person who's directly impacted has all of these means of surviving that are not necessarily within the legal system, and they're able to contribute their own experiences. And, and like, I think that's really important because being a lawyer, you just, like, it takes over you. Like, it takes over how you think mm-hmm. about stuff. And it's important to have people who operate outside of that thinking, who, like, don't know what that framework is. And can introduce new ideas into your head yeah yeah no i agree i agree with that let's let's wrap up there (laughs) so we're here today with isa noyola who's the director of programs at the transgender law center um, she's an immigrant rights activist, a trans rights activist, and is kind of working at the intersection of those two things. And um, Cynthia and I have both heard her speak twice now and have been amazed each time at her power and her wisdom. So we thought that this interview would be a great thing to bring to the podcast. Um, and so just to start off, Isa, can you share with us what you do at the Transgender Law Center? One, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really honored to be here and just to like get to share a little of the work that I do and who I am and like how I entered this work. Um, so yeah, I'm the deputy director at Transgender Law Center. Um, we are the largest trans-led organization in the country. We focus on impact litigation, policy, community organizing, communications work, um, and then just a general question around how do we better build an infrastructure for trans-led movement work um, around the country. Because uh, so often we find trans organizing is really just um, in survival mode, you know, like there's mm-hmm. just so many amazing groups on the ground that are doing amazing things, but with very little resources. And so we're also trying to figure out how do we have a stronger movement? How, how do we have a stronger resourced trans-led movement? 
Um, so doing advocacy, not just um, in states to, you know, combat anti-trans legislation, but also working with other non-trans-led groups around how can they better show up for trans people in their communities. I love that. I love the coalition aspect of it. But, and then you said you work on impact litigation like as a center. Yeah. Can you say some of the cases that y'all have been working on? Well, impact litigation, in our minds, there's so many ways in which trans folks are attacked. And so as opposed to being a direct service legal provider, right, where folks kind of just drop in and, you know, talk about the discrimination they they held, they, they've experienced, we think about what cases do we take that will have a larger impact for the community. And so discrimination cases that will have a broader sort of uh, meaning for the legal world and also for the institution, whether it's like a, a place of employment or the federal government or the state, um, local, you know, local city government. So I think to me, the impact litigation piece is an important part in this moment where trans folks are being attacked on so many levels, right? And so trying to get a grasp on that um, in this larger way um, gives us the ability to kind of one, signal the movement to say, hey, we're, we're needing basic human rights, right? Like legal protections um, and access to resources and access to employment and access to transition-related health care and access to housing, just like anyone else, access to education. And so we use this, this tactic and strategy of, of impact litigation to kind of have that broad stroke, um, not just here in California, but across the country. Um, and so we have various cases that have signified that for folks to then think about how does that apply to the local community? How does that, how do they make the letter of the law actually true for themselves? How do they make the, how do they make the legal victories true for their communities? I think it's really amazing that you're doing this wide sweeping work that is impacting so many. How did you get to this point where you're able to have such a wide lens? I mean, I got my start here in the Bay Area in San Francisco in the Mission neighborhood of doing um, community organizing um, and think, really thinking about the issues on a local level. Um, you know, one of my good friends, um, Victoria Arellano, was murdered um, in the Mission in San Francisco in 2006. And it just deeply shook me to my core, you know, because I just couldn't mourn her death. I just couldn't just, that was it. You know, like I couldn't just go to the service or in the vigil and that's it. And so for me, you know, understanding how violence surrounds trans people daily um, has been sort of my mission to really fight that, to really combat that and figure out solutions around how, what does a healthy trans community look like? And so to me, uh, you know, stories like Victoria Arellano and so many other trans women who have been brutally murdered because of transphobia is uh, sort of at the core of like, why I do this work, you know? And so for doing community organizing for many years and really understanding the ways in which communities are responding to violence, um, I took that, those learnings and that lesson um, and applied it to a, like a larger frame and a larger analysis of what's happening, not just here in the Bay, not just in California, but across the country and other parts and other regions. I know there's more that you've done in between there and, and the trans, uh, Transgender Law Center. Like you've mentioned, you found it somewhere and I definitely want to hear about that. But one of the themes of our podcast that we like to point out is that, you know, the South gets a lot of, a lot of attention for its problems. And Yvette and I are constantly trying to pro 
point out all the ways that New York and California have very similar problems or sometimes even worse. Mm -hmm. So what was it like doing community organizing in the mission in the early 2000s? You know, like, I, I feel like most people would be think like, oh, that's the best place in the world to, <laughs> to do that kind of work. And they imagine this. So what was what was your lived experience doing that work in the mission? Yeah, I mean, so I think in particular for San Francisco, it's seen as sort of the, you know, gay mecca or like the LGBT sort of rainbow constantly hovers over the city or something. And like people that come from other parts of the country to seek refuge and to like wanting to live an authentic life as a queer person or as a trans person or gender nonconforming, um, think that that once they get to San Francisco, like, like all of a sudden, you know, this world of possibility that was, did not happen in, let's say Texas or Arkansas or whatever can now happen in the city only to find that there are waiting lists and there's a lot more folks coming through. Um, and that some of the same issues around, again, resources, and safety and violence and discrimination are still rampant, even in a liberal city like San Francisco. And the city has like really, it, even though San Francisco has a strong legacy, just like New York, of resistance, of trans resistance, of queer resistance, that it still is trying to understand the ways in which trans people are embedded in the community and can live healthy lives and not just seen as clients, but just also a healthy member of the community. And so I think to me, the challenges that exist in pockets of like New York and LA and San Francisco really kind of magnify sort of the need that is happening in rural areas as well because of just we're seeing so many the influx of folks come through right asking for like healthcare, asking for housing asking for all these things that folks should be able to get back home right and so the same those same needs are 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 felt and so you see a tighter squeeze you see a more of an influx of programming and response to that and so yeah i mean i think to me the you know, San Francisco and New York and all of those, you know, there's still so much work to do around, again, not just trans people that are legible and that are doing the quote unquote right thing and are doing, you know, going to like workforce, you know, programs and getting their, you know, education and doing all these things. But it's also around communities that are not seen, right? So communities that are also held in institutions and in detention centers. And, you know, there's huge sort of needs in those communities that are often overlooked and often overseen because they're not seen as a part of the community, right? Like our folks, yeah. our family members, our friends in facilities are seen as other and are seen as disposable. So the state has us all programmed to think that they're not part of our community, that they're held in these institutions away because of their criminals or because they did some wrongdoing or whatever it is that they were criminalized for. Usually, you know, crimes of poverty and because they're engaged in street-based economies. But at the end of the day, I think, to me, the understanding of our how our, our humanity is tied together is so critical, right? That it's not just the folks that deserve dignity are the ones that do the quote-unquote right thing and follow like this cookie-cutter path towards citizenship or to being an upstanding citizen, you know? Yeah. You, uh, I always get such cool language from you. Like the last event, not today, the, but the before the event, you gave us the language of hold complexity. Yeah. And we use that oh, yeah, as one of, our, <laughs> one of our episode titles. We, we really, did. yeah, we, I've just really hold, held on to that phrase. And you just gave me another one, like crimes of poverty, all that. It's just, uh, you have such great language. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I find it really <coughs> moving that your work started because of the death of your really close friend. Yeah. And I've also heard you speak about how directly impacted people need to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, is that an issue that's difficult to communicate to lawyers who might not have been taught that at law school? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's so complex, right? I think that working at a, organization that centers its legal strategy as kind of like the forefront of what we do, you know, I just see both sides, right? That I I see sort of the ways in which the law in trying to decipher it and trying to pull it apart and to really interpret the law to benefit the community or to um, seek legal advances, that a lot of that language and a lot of that understanding and consciousness does not exist within the community, right? Because it's so pragmatic and it's so like, here's what, here's the parameters and here are the boundaries of the law and this is what it is, right? And to challenge that means really thinking, you know, multiple strategies are really thinking outside the box sometimes because it, you know, the system will have you believe that this is how it is and this is mm-hmm. the only way that it can be, right? And so yeah. for communities that are just not used to being a part of that, there's wisdom and understanding mm. of how to actually break apart those systems. Mm. And so it is, like I, I, in my heart, in my core, I believe that, you know, directly impacted communities around whatever issue, whether it's immigration or violence or detention, that they should be at the table and also that there is this need to also make the the whether it's a legal intervention or policy sort of strategy accessible like it's you know to make it accessible for communities that often you know don't have didn't go didn't do have an opportunity at formal education and so Mm -hmm. to me i think there is this it's it's a relationship right it's this like really symbiotic relationship where i think it is important that they need, like, both the lawyer and the community person need each other to really kind of build a strong case and really build a strong argument around how to understand the issue, around how to get to, you know, a place of whether it's a policy win or a solution, and that oftentimes the power dynamics and the power differential because certain things are more valued, right? Like a higher education, having a law degree is often more esteemed and over and seen sort of like as the expert, right? And so I think for me, pushing for community folks to constantly be at the table is not just around tokenizing them, but it is around seeing the value and the wisdom of, there is wisdom in the ways that folks, our community members have survived, right? Mm -hmm. And how, they then can understand how to connect the dots to why the situation is. And so it is both this give and take and it is this learning that happens along the way. Um, And, you know, one can't happen without the other. Otherwise, policies fall flat. Legal victories, you know, kind of don't mean anything. Like there's so many, there's so many wins that California has that folks don't even understand their own rights. Like, Mm. trans people don't understand that they can have access to so many things that many other states can't, Mm. right? Folks are still experiencing discrimination in the workplace here in California, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, because again, you know, yes, we had this win, but how did that get translated? Mm. How did that get communicated, right? How did that become real for communities? Yeah. Yeah, the implementation just happens to be a whole separate process. And I feel like a lot of times in the 
efforts that I've seen for like mobilizations always around the legislative act, like the action. And then that those same efforts like disappear when it comes to like implementing. It's like, let's implement, let's make sure people have this information and whatnot. So I think that's, that's really interesting. Also, I, I totally hear you about like the law school aspect because it's like we all come and we all think we're getting an education, but we forget about the way we're being boxed in. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're being taught but we're also being taught within those parameters so yeah. we have i to mean their uh, law school has is geared to shape your brain in a particular way to yes. think about what is possible and what is not mm -hmm. and this is what is right and so you have to understand that yes so i appreciate it's not that i don't have love or don't appreciate <laughs> the the legal mind or lawyers is that is that but to it's one thing to understand that you are a part of the system and trying to understand and like navigate that. And it's another thing for you to step outside of that. Well, sorry. So it's one thing for you to kind of step back and understand the context that you're entering in, right? And it's another thing for you to believe that that's the only, like totally buy into all of it mm -hmm. and say, this is the only thing that we can do. And this is the only intervention that can be made. Yeah, and not just that, but I feel like we're also fed the myth of, like, this is what it is, and this is how it is because it's fair for everyone, whereas it's like, well, it's no, like, only one type of person has right. decided this law, right. and right. it's it's fed to us. It's like, oh, this is what it is. It just, these books right. fell from the sky, and this is right. what was written on them. I mean, right now, so much of the fight for, you know, trans equality and legal protections is around defining gender. You know, like it's what at the, you know, it's like the definition of gender at its core, right? In terms of like what is already in the Constitution, what is already written into the Civil Rights Act, you know, like all these pieces is interpreting for lawyers to interpret the law around gender and how trans people fit into that definition, right? And so, you know, again, we're like the folks setting up the, the system and institutions and the Constitution, were they keeping in mind a brown trans Latina <laughs> from the Mission neighborhood? I don't know. Yeah, yeah no, that's frustrating because I can imagine, like, I get really frustrated when I hear white people talk about people of color experiences or even more when they're talking about women of color experiences. So I can only imagine, like, hearing, like, very strictly binary-minded folks, like, mm -hmm. cisgender, trying to define, like, the legal realm for another. I could, like, yeah. I'm already frustrated <laughs> just thinking about it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think because I think, you know, colonization and I think through imperialism and through these systems, you know, we've all, all of our minds have been conditioned to think mm -hmm. this is the only way to live. This is the only way that we can actually um, navigate our lives. And so all of us, like even we've been, I mean, for folks that are POC, for folks that are trans, for folks that are LGBT, whatever identities you hold, like we've been, there's a certain amount of internalizing that we've done. Mm -hmm. And so we also buy into it and we have to start to really kind of like what is like interrogate and undo and decolonize as so many folks say, say right, in the academic world, like um, that is like a rigorous process and that's never ending because no one and no one is exempt from that like because it's like we receive these messages on a daily basis right yes. yeah. from childhood to now right like in our interactions in you know the economy in the relationships in our families in our religious institutions all those things are embedded with a certain amount of of like strict ideas and norms and like 
ways of being that are not true for so many people. Yeah. That was something that you mentioned in your talk that I wanted to bring up now because you mentioned, oh, uh, I might not be speaking loud enough, so now I'm speaking louder. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, in the talk, you brought up that for you, your identity as a trans woman is really connected to reclaiming your indigenous identity. And um, that's actually something I've been thinking about a lot because I don't know what my indigenous yeah. roots are. And that makes me sad, makes me yeah. feel like there's a part of myself that I'll never know. Yeah. Um, and so I just wanted to ask you about what yeah. your experience was and how like how those things, how your gender identity is connected to decolonizing and what that means for you. You're not alone in feeling that way, right? Like I don't. You know, there's so much that I don't know about my indigenous ancestry. There's so much that was taken from me on purpose, mm -hmm. not by accident, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not just, there's so much violence that surrounds that history, right? And why our family members who might know pieces of art don't say it because it, it is something that they've been conditioned to think of not as valuable. I think for me, the way in which I identify as a trans woman is... <coughs> tied to uh, my indigenous ancestry is a part of my, you know, process of decolonizing sort of my myself in terms of how I relate to this work, how I relate to the world, how I relate to my culture, how I relate to my community. Um, and I think it can be overwhelming really quick, right? Because all of a sudden, if you say certain words or if you use certain identity markers, that all of a sudden it means you have to do all these things in order for you to be truly that. And I think it is more complicated than that. I think that if, if to me, I have, I know that like that lineage and that history and that culture and those identity pieces live in my blood and are a part of my consciousness. Um, I think it's what makes me strong. I think it's what makes me, you know, it gives me the endurance that I have around this work that I do because it's constantly challenging every day and demoralizing every day. And I think every time I connect to, in particular for me, cultural healing spaces, whether it's a limpia or whether it's a sweat lodge or whether it's, you know, having seeing a curandera to really understand the trauma that i hold in my body like all those pieces continue to open up new possibilities around understanding my identity um, i don't have it all figured out i'm still trying to figure it out i'm still trying to come into my identity as uh you know someone that it has really understands culture and understands my indigenous roots and really to value them and to understand them because it's not just about reading a book or it's not just about going back to the motherland or whatever it's mm -hmm. it's like it's bit by bit you know all of those pieces enter your consciousness and they like kind of build to really understand your identity and so i think each each time each piece of curiosity kind of builds on top of the other you know, not it makes it more manageable to me and not feel so overwhelmed, mm -hmm. you know. I don't want to like harp on this point too much, but this is like seriously something I've been thinking about for the past week or like two weeks <coughs> because um, like you mentioned that you like going to curandera and that um, like Olympias are important to you. Um, but I recently moved into a new apartment and I wanted to cleanse it with sage. And then someone asked me if I was appropriating uh, Native American culture. And I didn't know what to say. And I also need to be really careful because I'm a light-skinned Latina woman. And so I just have certain privileges in that respect. And I guess I just wanted 
get your take on yeah. like how you feel comfortable doing limpias or yeah. like not knowing exactly what your indigenous roots are and what the yeah. what the practices of your ancestors. I mean, I think it's been. all about being mindful, right? That I think it is it is not just a performance. It's not just a to me those cultural those spiritual pieces are not just around to prove that I'm this, right? Mm-hmm. That it's actually there's a meaning and there's like a sacred aspect around all of that. And so to me like the learning and the spaces that have opened up to me is because I've put my intention out there. I, I feel in a very, it's not about exploiting that identity yeah. so that I can have street cred, right? Mm-hmm. That it's actually about my own healing yeah. and that it's about my survival. Yeah. And it's about, you know, really fully understanding myself just as I have as a, a trans woman, you know? And so to me, that's the heart of it, right? Like, because if it, if it is about exploitation of identities, just so that I can ha- move up, you know, the ladder of um, oppression Olympics, like to me, like that then is like, it totally then becomes apparent to those around you. And it's a personal thing too. Yeah. Like it's such a personal thing that, you know, yes, I can talk to you and intellectualize it, but at the end of the day, this is a personal journey for me. Yeah. And not everyone's gonna understand that and that's fine. Um, you know, I'm, I'm open to talking about it cause I'm also trying to figure out where, you know, I can, you know, at, you know, I don't think none of us are exempt from being problematic. I don't think none <laughs> of us are exempt from, you know, uh, offending or stepping over the line or whatever that might mean. But to me, I think all those things we have to stay open with, right? Cause if we are wanting to decolonize our mind, decolonize our spirit, or to really understand the core of who we are and our culture and where we come from, um, and all those things that have helped us along the way to bring us here, like, you know, that takes some courage and you're not always gonna, you know, I think to me it's like about taking risks and like pushing, you know, pushing ahead bit by bit. Mm -hmm. Well, just to be respectful of your time, we're coming like to the end of this. Is and you haven't even had a chance to eat your tacos. <laughs> I need my tacos. I know. <laughs> um, but before we close, I don't know, Yves, is there something you want to add or something you want to close with? Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. There was a question that we had. Um, yeah. What would gender look like in your ideal world? I know it's a big question. Oh wow! But just thought I'd ask. Yeah. What would gender look like? I mean, I think. It would, well, one, it wouldn't be so strict. It wouldn't be like, um, I think there'd be a more openness about it. Um, I think it wouldn't be so tied to presentation. It wouldn't be so tied to all the things that we're so caught up in how, like, this is what a woman is, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what a man is. And these are the things that they do. These are the things that they don't do that is tied to emotional intelligence or that is tied to a career. You know, like, all those things are so gendered. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think all that would just be thrown out the window. And I think that it would better reflect, you know, just have a more holistic sort of aspect to it and sensibility that holds individuals holds um complication holds yeah i just like to me gender is a journey and everyone has their journey with their gender and gender identity and their relationship to that and how they experience it and i think yeah there's just so much crap that we've been fed i believe that you know through sort of i think trans people for society kind of demonstrate a possibility Mm -hmm. of what what folks can be and do and 
even question their own gender, even if you're not transgender, even if you're not gender nonconforming, that, you know, uh, everyone should question their gender. Everyone mm-hmm. should, like, think about why is it, why is it that I believe uh, certain things about myself or certain things about femininity or masculinity or, and just those ideas that come along with that and all that's implicated. So, yeah, I mean, it's such a big question, but that's <laughs> kind of where I would start, I guess. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can interview you again in the future <laughs> yes. in another episode. Totally. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming of on. Of course. <laughs> So, moving on to our case. So, the reason this case is called Gigi is because um, Gigi was a minor, and so they're only using the initials. But there's been a lot of news articles, so in case y'all are wondering, we're talking about Gavin Graham. So, this that's, that's Gigi's full name, Gavin Graham, but because he's a minor, his initials have been used in the official case title. Do you want to go over the facts? Yes. Okay, I can do that. So, Gavin is a transgender boy who wanted to use the boys' restroom at his high school. And the school administration approved it, so there was a period in time when Gavin was using the boys' restroom at his high school. No incidents occurred. There was no, no problems. But the school board passed a policy to ban him from using the boys' restrooms. And so then he was required to use, like, this separate restroom. I think at one point I heard, I couldn't find this in news articles, but at an event I went to, I believe, it like, the bathroom was in, like, the nurse's office. It was, like, a strange, strange, like, third bathroom for Gavin's use only. This was, again, it came down from, like, the school board, from, like, the community being outraged to this. And later, Yvette, we should definitely mention some of the comments that were made during that session. So the issue, and this, okay, so the case we're going to go over is the appeals level court. So this is the the court before it goes, went to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court basically just punted on the case and sent it back given that we're now in the Trump administration. So just so that folks know that we're talking about the appeals level for the Fourth Circuit, their opinion. So the issue for them was, was the school board impermissibly discriminating against Gavin in violation of Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution? And I believe we've gone over Title IX a little bit before already. Yvette, do you want to go over what the holding was? Sure. I don't know if we've gone over Title IX, so maybe we should just say quickly it's a law that was passed to ensure gender and sex equity within the public education system and... Usually, I, the one of the most popular contexts is like in athletic programs. That's when it's come up often. Is ensuring that there's equal funding lent to programs for girls as there are to boys. Yeah, and and to make sure there are enough sports teams and and so everything. Yes, and but it's not just. It's definitely the popular context is athletic, but like a lot of sexual assault mm-hmm. work. So when schools and colleges and campuses have been getting heat for not having like robust or having like sexual assaults reporting policies that were way too like the the perpetrators were just getting off scot-free or having to just write a letter apologizing they also faced some heat because the argument was that like the women who were being impacted by the assault and the rapes they weren't in the same environment and couldn't go to classes and stuff so title nine has is like a pretty broad not super broad but it's used a lot by advocates to ask for equality in these 
public institutions. And so the holding of the case was that they reversed the district court's dismissal of the Title IX claim because the district court didn't didn't give appropriate deference to the Federal Department of Education regulation, which was communicated via a letter. And so what that means is like when a federal department, like the Federal Department of Education, um, gives guidance to the bodies that it controls, in this case, school districts, then the, a school can be found in violation of, of not, not listening to um, the guidelines of this Federal Department of Education, which is what happened here. And they also, so the district court had denied a preliminary injunction because they said that the district court had used the wrong evidentiary standard in assessing the motion. And just a preliminary injunction is when oh, to get them to stop. Oh, oh, so, okay. for example, in this case, like where G, uh, where Gavin was being forced to use like the nurses' bathroom, like the preliminary injunction would have been like, okay, while we litigate this, while oh, we figure right, this right. out in court, um, court, can you ask the school to let me use the boys' restroom? while we figure this out. So it's kind of putting a stop to the harm until like the case is resolved. We have a lot of fucking phrases that we always have to go over. <laughs> so after this case, the Supreme Court granted certiori to, and heard oral arguments. So that happened. And then Trump was elected and he rescinded the letter from the Department of Education that the Fourth Circuit had used in their decision, the decision that Yvette just went over. And Trump justifies this by Pointing, well, Yvette, do you want to go over this? Oh, he just talked about the importance of local school district control. Um, and I think it's important to highlight this because the local control states' rights argument is like a f- used frequently. And in my experience, it's been like a cover for bigotry. Like, oh, you should let us pass this racist law because it's really important for states to have control over what they do. <laughs> and like, even in yeah even in experiences here like people who are like quote-unquote like states rights activists like also just you know coincidentally end up also being uh conservative themselves so i think that's like a a dog whistle like a phrase that's worth paying attention to and like thinking about why someone is actually advocating for quote-unquote local control or quote-unquote states rights yeah, and so the Supreme Court has vacated the decision from the Fourth Circuit, the decision we're going over right now, and remanded the case back to them, given that the document was taken away and a different like guidance document was in- issued by the Department of Education and the Department of Justice. And like, remember that we're talking about like the Department of Education, Department of Justice, like under Trump. <laughs> I think like those we need those caveats. Yeah. So should we go over like, what it takes to bring a Title IX claim? Yeah, yeah. So for Title IX claims, there have to be three things that are proved. So the first thing is that a person was excluded from participation in an education program because of their sex, and sex has been understood to like include gender. And then the second thing is that the educational institution was receiving federal financial assistance at the time of that exclusion, and basically every like educational system institution receives federal funding. So like even Stanford University, that's a private institution receives a lot of federal funding and then three 
that the third thing is that the improper discrimination caused the person harm. So those are like the three things that need to be proved, just in case you're wondering about like the legal issues behind this case. Another thing that we wanted to talk about is this concept of giving deference to administrative agencies. And this is basically like a central concept of administrative law, which is like that governs how agencies like how federal agencies like the Department of Education, like the environment, like the Environmental Protection Agency conduct their work. And there's a whole, believe it or not, a whole robust debate about how much deference should be given to government agencies because of these questions of how much control the federal government should have versus how much control local state governments should have. But that's like, it's like a whole doctrinal question in and of itself so we're just gonna like very lightly touch on it but that was something that was at issue here because there's just questions about like how exactly a local school district should interpret the the letter that the federal department of education wrote but the biggest thing to note is that the fourth circuit decision that we just mentioned did indeed find that the department of education under obama should be granted deference as to how they interpreted the law so Yvette, reading the opinion, I don't know, like, we talked uh, with Issa a bit about this, but just hearing cisgendered folks, and myself included, which is why I was really hoping to have Issa Mm -hmm. on today, um, and why I was so glad we could interview her, because, like, hearing hearing and reading cisgender folks talk about transgender issues just gets so problematic so quickly. So, like, the court, from a lot of their opinion, or for a bit of their opinion, They have to, like, discuss, like, how a school should determine whether a transgender individual is a male or female for the purpose of access to sex-segregated restrooms. And that just, like, that whole conversation, it's just, like, I get why the law is into, like, having this discussion, but the law has no place, like, the no school board should have a place, like, deciding, like, how to, how are we going to define your gender? Yeah. I mean, the laws, yeah. I mean, the government defines things inappropriately all the time. Yeah, and in this in this opinion, their discussion, like, they have two options. This is, like, the two options they can come up with for identifying someone's gender for them. So the first is, like, determining maleness, <clears throat> determining maleness or femaleness with reference exclusive to genitalia or determining maleness or femaleness with reference to gender identity which to me makes a lot of sense, like basing it off someone's gender identity. Mm-hmm. And this reminds me, there's some event at Stanford Law School that I went to last quarter, so like back in the spring, with the one of the attorneys from Gloucester County School Board, like he argued this case or whatever. And like at one point, like at first, like there was, because there was him and then there was one of our professors who was responding to his points and so they were like engaged in a discussion. And at first, like, it was very much about, like, legal, def- like, issues, and you talk about deference, and they, they talked about the facts of the case, but literally there came a point when their whole discussion, like, for 10 minutes was just, like, like, one professor, our professor would say, like, but he's a boy, and the other person, the other attorney would respond, like, but he's really a girl, and he's actually a girl, and he's actually this, and just, like, sitting there watching these folks just, like, just debate someone's gender was so uncomfortable like I don't understand how that attorney felt comfortable doing that and like to get up in court and have to argue that like I 
that just doesn't make sense to me. I've heard horror stories of people's public defenders misgendering them, like people who are supposed to be working for you misgendering them. So I think this type of violence happens all the time, unfortunately, in the legal profession. And I, I think that, the, you know, the these two options, even though it's preferable to for the reference point to be a person's gender identity instead of their genitalia is better than basing it on genitalia but the categories are still male or female yeah it's still rooted in maleness and femaleness yeah which yeah the state has an incentive for like people to procreate and so there's just like yeah incentives for keeping these two categories around the state religion just a couple different folks have incentives (laughs) um eva why do you think it was significant and if you do why do you think it was significant that this case centered on bathrooms well, I think it's important because like being this question of public accommodations comes up so much for trans folks, like just being able to access public space in the same way that cisgendered people do is a constant struggle. And like, yeah, just especially if you if there's so many reasons why you're unlikely to be safe in like your private spaces then like having access to public spaces is even more important and like just being able to use the bathroom like being able to use a public bathroom is a really basic human thing that we probably don't think about that much as like two cisgendered women who like can walk into a a restroom no problem but like it's a huge thing like being able to use the bathroom is very basic Yeah, I was really um, heartbroken in some of the articles we were reading about, like Gavin speaks about how like going through the process, like the process of coming out as transgender and and all that was already difficult. And so having that extra like attention and highlight over like which restroom he could use made it worse. Mm -hmm. So he started like he just like stopped going to the restroom while he was at school Mm -hmm. and was just holding it. So he like developed like like several urinary tract infections which is just super painful like like you know and that's just heartbreaking where it's like i yeah i cannot imagine not using the restroom during the school day yeah me either i i also think restrooms are important because we saw a lot of language about how like some folks were so worried about like this policy because they were like oh, we're scared that boys will just, like, throw on a dress and, like, go into the women's restroom and, like, commit sexual assault, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like, why don't you just teach boys not to sexually assault others instead of worrying about what their ability, whatever. But it's just, like, I feel like the restroom, like, for females is such a, like, female space. And, like, it's, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, like, societal constructions around the restroom and, like, and then any restroom like just the privacy that we expect in a restroom i don't know so i I think there's a lot to restrooms that this case like really i don't know i guess it maybe would have been the same if we had been talking about locker rooms or something because there's like this privacy associated to the space where folks are just like i don't know i feel like they get really delicate about it yeah i think there actually are like more questions to how to design bathrooms that we like don't necessarily think about like like, you would think that maybe just having, like, single stall bathrooms would be good, but then actually I've read statistics about how, like, those single stall restrooms like that are where sexual assault are more likely to happen. Yeah. Um, but the type of bathroom setup that I like, not that I'm 
not that I'm like an expert that my opinion should be valued more than anybody else's, but just like my what I think is good, <coughs> like single stalls with toilets and then a common sink area. It's just like the most chill. It's private and doesn't matter what your gender is. Yeah. Any any final thoughts before we wrap up? Nope. Okay. Hey, yo, my dogs go heat, control the whole street. And when it's time to bust, they 